This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Hey, good morning, everybody. I am so thankful to see your faces, even though it's half of your faces. But it's so exciting to be here with all of you. I thank you so much for, for making the effort to be here. You know, we, we also, sorry, getting myself ready here. We also have many that are watching online right now. And so thank you guys also for joining us online, wherever you might be. It might be in your living room or your bedroom or your dining room. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, th- there's that song that we were singing and... The words just struck me so real, especially in a time like this where we find ourselves in some social distancing and, uh, uh, you know, wearing masks and maybe, maybe a heightened level of fear over uh, coronavirus and those kind of things. Um, there's, that, there's that verse that says, as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. And one of the things that's been on my heart that I've been praying all week long about our services here is that despite the evidence of it all around, right, you can walk into this room and immediately be reminded about COVID-19, right? We're all wearing masks. We've got these plastic things on the seats that are getting wiped down every other row. It's so easy to, to think about those things. But there's something powerful about the presence of God, that when his presence, when his presence begins to move in our midst, things just disappear. And especially if you've come to church and it's been 18 weeks since we've been gathering and, and we haven't really been meeting, we haven't really been having uh, you know, public services and you might feel a little bit disconnected. Maybe over the last 18 weeks there's been some, some uh, coldness of heart that has developed towards, towards Christ or or towards, you know, your relationship with God or relationship with other people. Maybe over the last 18 weeks, some habits were, were brought back into your life when you had shed those habits, you let go of those addictions. But in his presence, a hundred billion failures disappear. And so my prayer for you right now is that this despite what we see with our eyes, that this would be a moment and we could walk out and say, God, I am walking with you. I'm in with you. God, you can, you can change my life. You can change my heart. You can change my circumstances. You can change this world because of your presence. There's power in his presence. And so I'm so, so, so grateful. Well, listen, I, I, you know, we're, gonna, we're, we're wrapping up this series that we've been in called Follow Me. And... Um, in this series, we've been basically taking stories from the Gospels and, and highlighting these stories and talking about uh, some pretty powerful things about how to follow Jesus Christ. What, it, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And so over the last five weeks, we have, we've explored you know, five different ideas about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I don't have enough time today to unpack or to, to basically kind of talk about what we've done so far so if you've not if you've not uh, heard those you've not listened to them or you've not watched them online I encourage you to go back and watch those messages but one one of the things about following Jesus the follow me thing this invitation of Christ the most simple most succinct most direct invitation of Jesus to any would-be follower 
to follow me, one of the most important ideas over the over, over, overarching in the entire series is this idea of commitment. In fact, I have been stricken with the idea, and the longer I live, the older I get, the more I realize that my life, our lives, your life is defined by the commitments that you make along the way. Like I've been married for 33 years, going on 34. And our marriage is defined by the commitments that we made 33 years ago, 34 years ago, really, when we started dating, 34 years ago that we made towards each other and towards God. And that doesn't mean that it was smooth sailing the whole time. It doesn't mean that it was easy the whole time. There have been a lot of, you know, curves. There's been a lot of struggles. There's been some challenges along the way. But the commitment to each other and before God is what defines our marriage. I think about people who are being buried. You know what they celebrate when they're, somebody's being buried and they're talking about that person? Most often they're talking about the commitments that they made along the way. What distinguished them was the commitments that they made along the way. And so our challenge, all of our challenge, all of us, our challenge is to commit to following Jesus Christ. And that's really been the call of this series the entire time is commit. Jesus has come to you and he's tapped you on the shoulder and he said, hey, listen, Rich, will you follow me? Will you follow me? And so oftentimes we hear that invitation, we're like, yeah, 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 that's a good idea. Like last week we talked about, you know, the guys that said they wanted to follow Jesus, but they didn't really want to sacrifice much. Jesus comes to each and every one and says, will you follow me? And our response, our best response is, yes, Lord, I commit to following you. I put my hand to the plow and I don't look back. And so that's what we've been looking at. So today what I want to do is just one last challenge. And the challenge, I'm titling, I'm titling it, Empty the Jar. Empty the Jar. And basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking on the inside. And we're going to be trying to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. What Jesus Christ has given to us. How our lives have been changed because of what he did on the cross for us. And so this is an appeal to, to followers of Jesus Christ. To those of you who have said, yes, I'm going to follow you, Lord. But maybe we've forgotten a few things along the way. And the invitation is to come back to that. We're going to be looking at a story in Luke chapter 7. But before we get into that story, it's important that we understand a little bit about the first century Middle Eastern culture. Um, Things like simple politeness and good manners, we need to look at that. Every culture is different. Every culture has its nuances. Even within the U.S., there are hundreds of different cultures, even within the United States. You start thinking globally, there are thousands, tens of thousands of different cultures, and they, they, they operate differently. They relate differently. Sometimes some things that we do very naturally without even thinking about you know, it's just part of our culture. It's just part of who we are. Some other culture looks at us like, man, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. And some of you look at other cultures and you're like, man, that is so weird what they're doing. You know, that's true. That's just, so it's important for us to understand when we're, especially when we're reading the scriptures, to understand what's happening, happening culturally. Like when I, I remember when we were in Bangladesh, I was invited to this, um, to go look at some land. I had just moved, we have just 
our whole family, we just moved to Bangladesh, we were new in the country, didn't speak the language, we're just trying to get our bearings, trying to figure things out, and I had, in, I had been invited to come look at this land that was going to eventually become the, the place for our children's home. We have a children's home in Bangladesh. And so, um, and so I go out there, you know, and, and we're, we're supposed to, you know, and here's the thing, I'm, I'm learning the culture. It's just months I've been there. I'm like, I'm really, I'm just paying attention to everything that's going on. And most of, most of the time I'm just going, my eyes are, oh, my eyes are like this. My mouth is, jaws dropped. I'm just like, why do they do that? Why do they act like, like, for example, one of the things that they do in their culture, there's this, you, you under, some of you understand this, the, the difference between the, le- the right hand and the left hand or the clean hand and the dirty hand. You, you get that. You've probably heard of those, those, that terminology in the past, right? You don't. Okay, so, so the eating hand and the Charmin. Does that help? Charmin? You know Charmin toilet paper? Okay, there, there we go. Okay, so because pe- people in other parts of the world, especially in the, you know, under, underdeveloped countries or developing countries, they eat with their hands and they clean themselves with their other hand. <laughs> okay? So, so very quickly, very quickly we learn, don't do anything with your left hand. Especially out in public. Don't touch people with it. Don't eat with it. You know, you learn. That's just what you don't do, you know. So we had this, this young guy that came out to visit us, this intern. And unfortunately for him, he was left-handed. <laughs> and so when you eat with your right hand, um, as an adult, okay, as a kid, there's a lot of it, there's a lot of it uh, you know, leeway given for kids you know kids can eat with their with their right hand and they'll like dig into the food and it gets all over their hand and then the older they get the more you know the more educated they get about how to eat with your hand so by the time you're an adult you understand as an adult you only eat with your fingers your four fingers I could eat a whole meal rice dal curry everything eat with my right hand and not get any part of my palm at all uh dirty just the tips of my fingers from the knuckles down, right? This kid who had come, the intern who had come to visit us, uh, he, was, he was left-handed, first of all, and he had a useless right hand. <laughs> so poor guy, you know, he's trying so hard to eat with his right hand, and he's just got, he's like, didn't even, he's like trying to scoop it up like this, and you know, that's how, you, it, just, it just looked terrible, you know? And so at some point, and I think people were kind of snickering and laughing at him. And at one point, he just said, forget this. And he just cleaned his right hand and then started digging in with his left hand and started eating with his left hand. Man, you would have seen the table. It just went silent around that table. Everybody's just looking at him like, some people are like, they're, they're grossed out because he's eating with his left hand. It's just, just disgusting, you know? So anyway, that... Cultures are important to understand, right? And so I was invited to this village to look at this land, and I remember how one of my experiences, I'm sitting in this, in this living room of this host in this village, and we're all sitting on the, on the floor in a circle, and um, they serve us tea, and then after they serve us tea, they start bringing this tray. And I didn't know what was on the tray. It was like a, it's like a tray with like these yellowish, white, yellowish kind of pod looking things you know just a whole bunch of them and there and and when they brought it out everybody was like "Woo, yes you know and I so I leaned over to the guy that was with me Shiraj he was my kind of like my my chaperone because I was new in the country I didn't know a whole lot so he was telling me everything teaching me everything and as the the the, the trace I said what is that he said oh that 
brother, you're going to love it. That's katal. That's how you said in Bengali, katal. I said, okay, what's katal? <laughs> katal is jackfruit. Anybody know what jackfruit is? Heard of jackfruit? Yeah, um, jackfruit. It's funny, when he said, brother, it's jackfruit, immediately, I, had re- I remembered, I mean, before I even got to the country, people were telling me, don't eat jackfruit. <laughs> don't eat jackfruit. It's slimy and it stinks. And if it gets on your clothes, it stains your clothes. Don't eat jackfruit. And so here I am sitting in this circle as this tray's being passed around. And I'm thinking, don't eat jackfruit. Don't eat jackfruit. But, but what do I do? I can't like just not, everybody's just digging in. They love it, you know. I can't just not eat jackfruit, you know, I just can't ignore it, you know, and so as it's getting closer, I'm thinking, what should I do? Can I, can I get away with saying, oh, no, no, thank you, I'm full, you know, lie a little bit, I don't know. Um, what, what, what do I do? I was starving, actually. So uh, as it's getting closer, I lean over to Shiraj and I say, Shiraj, I don't know if I can. He said, oh, brother, it's good. Just eat it. Just grab it. Don't offend these people. Just chew it and eat it. And I'm like... Maybe I'll just grab one, take a little nibble off, and then feed that scabby dog on the way out or something. I don't know. Hide it somehow. I, but you can't do that either. So, so it gets to me, and, and I grab it, and I stick it in my mouth. And what Shiraz did not tell me is that, man, when it comes, it comes slimy. That thing went in my mouth, and it just, what's the, uh, there's a seafood that does that. What's the seafood that kind of just, oysters, like an oyster. Yeah, but it was big. It was, you know size of two of my fingers like that, you know. I stuck that thing in my mouth, and it just slid right down my throat, gagged me, and then it all came back up, and then I was like, I can't vomit on this guy's floor, so I'm like, what do I do, you know? And so I'm trying to think, can I, can I just like puke here? What should I do, you know? I don't know what to do. And I had this image of this missionary. I'll tell you what I did. I ended up swallowing everything. I ate katal that day. But the reason why I didn't spit it all out is because I was walking with this Bengali guy. We're walking to this village on this dirt road, dirt path. And we came up to this lone tree. There was like a tree there, big tree. And as we're walking by, the, the, the Bengali with me says, you see that tree? That's the Hawkins tree. I'm like, what? The Hawkins tree? What's the Hawkins? Is that the name of the tree? Is that the kind? No, no, that's a missionary Hawkins, a missionary who had died like 50 years earlier. He's long gone. I'm like, oh, like he's about to tell me this fantastic story about missionary Hawkins and that particular tree. He said, yeah, that's where missionary Hawkins, he had terrible diarrhea. That's where he did it, at that tree. <laughs> I didn't want to be the guy known that, Oh, yeah, that, that new missionary showed up and he vomited all over my floor. That would, be the, that would be my heritage 50 years after I've died. So, anyways, that's what I did. I ate katal. I was learning. There's all kinds of ideas about, you know, our culture and how we're polite around the dinner table. Whether it's around the world or whether it's here in America, we have all kinds of ideas of how to do it. Every culture has its own set of rules. Some are written, some are unwritten, but they're all expected, right? And that's exactly what's happening here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at this dinner party, <clears throat> and there's all kinds of bad manners happening around the table. Bad manners. Um, he's eating in the home of Simon the, the Pharisee, and Simon breaks a lot of these rules, but not because he doesn't know the culture. He knows the culture. He's just actually being very disrespectful towards Jesus. And so let's look at Luke chapter 7. 
And, um, and what, what, what Simon is doing, basically, he's being disrespectful towards Jesus, but what's going to happen in this story, the twist in the story, and I love the Gospels for this very reason, that the Gospels always present these stories that you, would, you can read them and they'd be like entertaining by themselves, but there's this point being made, right? And the point gets made not through Simon the Pharisee and not so much really through what Jesus says, but the point's made by an uninvited guest, a guest who came to the party who had not been invited, a woman. Let's look at Luke, Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. He says, <clears throat> when, one of the Pharisees invited, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus has been invited by this Pharisee. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So there's this woman who's, ident- who's identified as having a sinful life. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Perfume. She comes to this party. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he's challenging that Jesus actually knows anything, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. And then he labels her. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, I like this, Simon, I have something to tell you. <laughs> now, that phrase, I have something to tell you, is a, it's actually a middle, it's a Jewish idiom or a Hebrew idiom, right? It's a, it's a way of saying, okay, I'm about to tell you something and it's going to sting a bit. Like, you ever been approached by somebody and says, hey, 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 Rich, I don't want to overstep, but. <laughs> when, when people say that, when they say but, I'm like, okay, where's the exit? I want to get out of here, you know, because I know it's coming. I know they're about to lay down the law. They're going to say something that they're offended about or upset, upset about, you know. And so this is exactly what Jesus does to Simon. It goes on, verse 40. Tell me, teacher, Simon says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, a large amount of money. Another 50, not so large amount of money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. So Jesus very briefly, in basically two sentences, tells a story about people who owed a debt and how this master forgives the debt. Now, which of them will love him more? Which will love the master more? Simon replied, and I like how he replies. He says, I suppose, kind of like he's inconvenienced a little bit, kind of like he's a little bit haughty and arrogant. He goes, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Like it's a dumb question, right? Jesus responds, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, is Jesus making his point. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. In other words, the way she loved somehow or another talks about how much she has, or at least she feels that she has been forgiven. 
But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So this is a story where Jesus is invited by this Pharisee to come eat at his house. And when he shows up, Simon's kind of rude. Simon displays bad manners. Simon is culturally insensitive in many ways. See, in those days, it was customary to greet someone of at least equal social standing with a a kiss on the cheek, right? The person comes in, if you're my equal in some ways, at least relatively close to equal, I would kiss you on the cheek. If you really, really wanted to honor that person, you would take their hand and you would kiss their hand. This was customary. This wasn't something weird. Jesus is a rabbi. Simon is a Pharisee. This would be normal. And yet, none of this happens. Jesus comes in, his feet are dirty and dusty. Again, it was a custom at the time. In fact, it was even mandatory that that as you walked in, if you were coming in for a meal, that your feet would be washed. If you really wanted to to, uh, honor the the guest, you would would wash his, his feet yourself. At least... You'd have a servant, maybe, that would come and wash their feet. At the very least, at the very least, you would offer a bowl, a basin of water, and a towel so that Jesus could have washed his feet. None of this happens. And so the question, here's another custom. We don't have, actually, we don't have an equivalent in our culture, but like if you came if you came to, to, to the house, you as a host, you would pull out a little bottle of olive oil, maybe inexpensive olive oil, and you'd take some on your finger and you'd put it on their forehead. You'd anoint their forehead. It's a way of blessing that person. Again, we don't have that as a custom of ours, but that would have been something you would have done, especially if the person was a rabbi. None of this happens. So it just makes you wonder, Why? I mean, Simon, why would you even invite him to your house? You know that you are breaking all the rules, at least the cultural rules. Why would you even invite him to your house? Such an inconvenience to have Jesus there. And what we understand here basically by Simon's actions is that he's just checking the boxes. He's just doing his duty. He's the ranking religious leader of that town, and so it was customary that the ranking religious leader would invite a guest rabbi in and would invite him to the house. So Jesus shows up in town, and oh, man, Simon, he's just bothered. He's like, all right, Jesus, if you, if you want, you can come to my house. Like his heart reveals that he doesn't really want that. But yeah, Jesus, if you want, I'll feed you something if you just come. And he's just doing this because it's expected of him. He's just checking a box. That's all he's, that's all he's doing. And sometimes we can do that, the same thing here 2,000 years removed. That we can get in this routine of our faith and this routine of our Christian walk where all we're doing is just checking boxes along the way. And maybe, you even, maybe you're even here right now, not because you really want to be here, but you're here because... It was your grandma's dying wish that you would please attend church somewhere. Or maybe you're here because, well, if you don't go to church, your girlfriend won't date you. (laughs) We're just checking a box, just checking a box. It's what happened here in Luke chapter 7. Simon's heart really isn't in it. 
Well, here's the irony of this whole story is that Simon, as a Pharisee, he would have gone to rabbinical school. And in rabbinical school, he would have been taught, he would have been, you know, it would have been enforced for them to memorize the, the Old Testament. So by the time he was 12 years old, he had memorized the first five books of the Bible, the, what they call the Pentateuch. He would have already memorized those. 12 years old. I mean, think about us. You know, New Year's comes around. We make New Year's resolutions. We're like, yeah, I think I'm really, I'm really going to read through the Bible this year. I'm really going to read through the Bible this year. And so January rolls around. We start reading through the Bible. And February comes along. And, you know, you read Genesis. And then you read Exodus. And you get to Leviticus. And what happens? Like, I'm out. <laughs> I can't do this. This is too much. Simon, by the time he was 12... He had memorized the first five books of the Bible. By the time he was 15, he had the entire Old Testament memorized. You know what that means? That means that by the time he was 15, I don't know how old he is now, but by the time he was 15, he had 300 prophecies about Jesus being the Messiah floating around in his head. Memorized. 300 prophecies about the soon coming Messiah who would bring deliverance to Israel, the one that they've been anticipating, the one they've been waiting for, and now that Messiah sits right across the table and Simon doesn't even recognize it. In fact, it's just an inconvenience. He spent his life studying, but he's just inconvenienced right now. He sits across the table his feet haven't been washed, his cheek hasn't been kissed, his head hasn't been anointed with oil, not at all. And that happens. That happened in Simon's house 2,000 years ago, and you know what? It happens in our house even today. Or we might walk into a room like this, <clears throat> so many other things running through our head, we're not even really, we're not even really engaged. We're not really understanding what's going on we're just here and we go through the motions and we check the box I went to church today I did my duty I love how the stories go I love how the gospels do this because in the middle of this Simon and his disrespect and his dishonor of Jesus and his ignorance about who Jesus was Luke introduces a woman into the story. The Bible calls her a sinner. A sinner. Probably a better translation is that she sins for a living. That's really a better translation of that word. Meaning that she's a woman of the city. She's a prostitute. That's, that's who is introduced into this story. I want you to think about this, Okay. Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus the rabbi, who is already by this time doing amazing miracles. People know about his miracles. Invites Jesus the rabbi. I'm certain that there are other religious people in this. He's a Pharisee. He's a main Pharisee in town. There's other religious people in this house. Jesus gets invited to the house. He comes to have dinner. And in the middle of this religious group shows up this woman who sins for a living. Can you imagine the tension in that room? Can you imagine what it would have been like for her to show up? And I mean, people were probably thinking, 
maybe even offended what, what gives you the right to be here. Why do you think you can just come into this place? Who do you think you are? I'm sure some of them were like embarrassed, maybe looking down. They were probably embarrassed for Simon because this woman was in, was in his house. Maybe some of them, a little bit more compassionate, were embarrassed for her because she was embarrassing herself. Some were probably embarrassed because, oh, well, she knows them. <laughs> and so they were hiding too. Now she's at the feet of Jesus, and I'm guessing that Jesus, having taught early in the day, recognized her from the crowd. I don't know what he taught on. I don't know what he might have said, but one thing is clear is that he said something talking to that crowd. He said something that made her understand clearly how God felt about her. Kind of like that song, in his presence... When you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. And I'm sure that's exactly what she was feeling. There's something about Jesus, so much so that she walks into this room knowing that there are others looking at her, knowing that others are despising her, knowing that others don't wish that she was not there, but she's there because there's a man that looked at her and no man has ever looked at her that way. She has felt the love, the compassion that she had never felt before. And I'm sure that Jesus looks at her and he's smiling. She's just undone. She's undone by the grace and the love that she's experiencing from Christ. I want to pause here for a second. This is an important exercise for us, guys. This is an important exercise for us. Every once in a while, you've got to stop and think about what has been done for you. It's too easy to become self-righteous and look around at the world and say, yeah, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you, and I'm better than you, and I'm better than them, and I'm better than that group, and I'm better than that organization, and forget so much, so much has been done for us, and this is where this woman is. She's just undone. She's undone by the grace of God. She's undone by his love. And so she just falls at his feet and all she can do, she has no words to speak. All she can do is cry. And she begins to cry and her tears are falling and she's down at the feet of Jesus and her tears begin to fall and she realizes the little muddy streaks down the feet and she realizes, oh no, his feet haven't been washed. And she knows that she can't ask for a, a basin of water or a towel she can't because nobody will give it to her so she just weeps and then she lets down her hair which by the way in that culture was a there's a gasp in the room you don't do that that's left for the bedroom only between a husband and a wife but she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe the feet off of Jesus she's cried on his feet and she begins to wipe and clean his feet She washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them down with her hair. Everyone, everyone watching is expecting Jesus to say something. This is so unconventional. This is so anti-cultural. This is so wrong in so many ways culturally. How can Jesus possibly allow this? 
She has a jar of perfume around her neck, which was customary for women who sin for a living. They would use it. It was part of their profession that when they, when the client would come in, they'd put a little bit on, smell better, a little dot here, a little dot there. And she had done this many times over. But this time as she's at the feet of Jesus and having washed his feet with her tears and having wiped his feet down with her hair, she then pulls that little jar of alabaster oil. And she doesn't put a little dot. She empties the jar on his feet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine the smell in the room? I mean, it was just like I, I had this image. I had this image of this room with a bunch of Pharisees and religious leaders and Jesus sitting there and a woman at his feet dumping this alabaster oil on his feet. It just filled the room. This jar of oil represented so much for this woman. It was expensive, by the way. Who knows how much, some, some commenters say it could have su- supported her for the rest of her life if she had sold it. That's how expensive it was. It represented the life that she lived. She lived a life of basically giving herself to men. And this is what in many ways would mask some of what was going on inside of her. It was her identity. But you know what happens on that day when she's at the feet of Jesus? She doesn't care. She takes it. She just dumps it all out. It's valueless to her in comparison to being at the feet of Jesus. Was it reckless? Yes. But it represented something about her. She was surrendering everything of her past to him, including that alabaster jar her most wealth the most wealth she had was right there it was reckless yes it was impulsive absolutely she didn't realize that when she was going to be at his feet crying that his feet wouldn't have been washed so impulsively she just dumps out that oil on his feet just gets rid of it all it's this act of surrender did Jesus love it I'm sure the Pharisees around it, I mean, they, in fact, in other stories, it's not in the, the exact story, but in other stories, it talks about this, this alabaster oil being spilled out, and, it, and the religious leaders say, that could have been sold and used for something else. I'm sure they were offended of the waste in that moment, but I guarantee you that Jesus was looking at her, and he was loving it, loving every bit of it. So the question I've got for us, this is a hard question. The question I got for us is, when was the last time, when was the last time you were at the feet of Jesus like that? When was the last time that you were so undone by the grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ in your life that you couldn't help it but just cry? When was the last time you were so amazed by his grace 
that it just came out in extravagant generosity. Reckless generosity. That's what emptying the jar is. Emptying the jar is surrendering it all. It's saying, Jesus, everything, everything is yours. That's what it is. Emptying the jar is when you surrender in such a way that people around you look at you and like, whoa, 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 that's a little reckless. Like, you know, we could have, that's what some of the disciples did in, in another story in scriptures when somebody was pouring out this oil. They're like, whoa, whoa, we could have fed a lot of hungry people with that. It's a little reckless, Jesus. Why are you letting this happen? Let's use a little common sense. You're going a little too far with this faith thing. Next week, we have a, a missionary couple in our church, Zach and Jenny, and um, they're from our church, and they're serving in Asia as missionaries. Jenny was a, uh, an engineer. She graduated an engineering degree and became a civil engineer, was working here in town, but um, they, were, they were so compelled to just give their lives away for Christ that, that they just, she gave up her career and both Zach and her just decided we're just we're, we're going to go to we're going to Asia's missionaries. I'm certain her parents are like, "Aren't you taking this a little too far, Jenny? <laughs> Isn't this a little reckless on your part? Aren't you a little crazy here? Why do you think you're doing this?" But you know what Jenny was doing? She was emptying the jar. She was just getting rid of it all. Anything of this world that is our identity, anything of this world that's our significance, anything of this world. That is what props us up. That's the stuff that we end up surrendering to Jesus Christ. And so as a church family, emptying the jars is what we need to do. It gets uncomfortable. It's not always practical. It's marked by extravagant worship and extravagant generosity. But that's who we need to be as a church. I like what it says in verse 39. It says, uh, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he says, he said to himself, okay, so he's not talking out loud, got it? He's thinking, right? This is what he says. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Simon is questioning whether Jesus can actually read minds here, like if he were a prophet, he would know that she's a sinner. You know, like, why, why would he allow that? Jesus answered him. <laughs> this, is, this is comical to me, actually, because the guy's thinking something, and he's thinking exactly this. You don't know what, you don't know anything. And Jesus knows what he's thinking and answers him. <laughs> So he tells Simon the story of these two servants who couldn't pay their, pay their debt. One had a debt of 500, one had a debt of 50, and the master forgave the debt. And he basically says to Simon, look, look Simon, you see this woman here? I came into your house, from the time I came into your house, you didn't kiss me on the cheek, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't wash my feet, but she is crying all over my feet and with her hair wiping it down. You didn't. You didn't anoint me with oil, but she's just poured out this expensive perfume all over me. You know why, Simon? The one who is 
Forgiven much, loves much. Actually, another way of saying that is this. The one who recognizes how much they've been forgiven goes to extreme lengths to love God in return. It's not that Simon didn't have anything to be forgiven of. He just wasn't aware of it. He was very content in his own self-righteousness. He wasn't aware that his self-righteousness in the name of God had got up there going, I'm about to puke. (laughs) Because he thinks he's so righteous. (laughs) So the question for us as we kind of wrestle through this story is, who am I in this story? We talked about this a couple weeks ago that when we read these stories from the scriptures to ask ourselves something, who are we in the story? So who am I in this story? Maybe a better question for this particular story is who do I want to be in this story? Because I think too often we, we, we know the right answer, but too often we're trying to be Simon. We're trying to be the person who has our act together. We have it all together. We know all the right answers. We know what, we, you know, we've won a few Bible trivia quiz games, you know, we, we know it all, you know? We want to be polite, we want to be kind, we want to be nice, we want to have a nice house, we want to have a you know, nice job, we have all these nice things, and yeah, Jesus is okay, but he's okay on the side. Like, I have all this stuff together, and I have Jesus here on the side, and, and just in case, just in case, you know, like something tragic happens in my family, then Jesus, Jesus, please help. But otherwise, we just kind of got, got it all together, and Jesus becomes more of an inconvenience, really for our life than really how we're meant to live. We know the right answer. We know that we're supposed to be like this woman, but we cannot be like this woman unless we humble ourselves, unless we surrender it all, unless we, unless we say, Jesus, I'm emptying the jar. I'm emptying the jar. We can't. And so as a church, that's what we're committed to. If we're not, look, If we just come here and all we do is sing some songs and hear some preaching and check some boxes, we're not getting it. We don't understand the point of why he came. If what God has done for us doesn't result in extravagant generosity, where we give of our resources away, where we give of our time away, where we give of our energies away, we don't get the point. I know that there's a lot of motivations of why we give. I understand that. We use that here. We talk about different ways and reasons why you should give. But the most important reason why we should give is because everything was given for us. And because I'm grateful. I'm so thankful that I have this kind of life now because of what Jesus gave for us. And so as a church, we want to be that kind of church. A church that empties the jar. Last week, I... Last week, I, I ended with this idea of commitment, and I asked you to fill in this blank. I commit to, and whatever it is, and I gave you a list of different people that made different commitments throughout, and so I'm going to ask you again, what is your commitment? The commitment primarily is for us to follow Jesus, and I'm going to ask you also to be a person who chooses to empty the jar. Now, one of the things I'm very aware of, and I'm sure of, <clears throat> here at Life Church, that as weird as it looks right now for how we're doing church, the future post-COVID-19 for Life Church is greater than we could have ever dreamed of 
pre-COVID-19. I believe that. I believe that 100%. God has been giving me some words about our future. And so we're expanding. We're breaking out. We're not going to sit back. We're not going to lick our wounds after COVID-19 and say, oh, that was so terrible. No, God knows what's going on. God knows exactly what's going on. And the future is amazing for us. But here's what it's going to require. It's going to require an army of people who say, Life Church is my home church and I am emptying the jar. I'm going all in for Christ. I'm doing it all. I'm going all in. I'm going to fall at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to respond with extravagant worship, with extravagant generosity. I'm going to go to a life of complete surrender. That's what it's going to require. And so here's my question to you. As I asked you, who are you in the story? If you answer that question right now by saying, I want to be like that woman who empties a jar, I'm just going to ask you to stand up. Just stand up where you're at right now. I want to be like that person who empties a jar and says, God, I'm all in. I'm all in. You've done so much for me. I can't do anything else except just give my all to you. And if you're watching online, I know you can't. I don't know if you're standing. You might be standing where you're at, but you can put in the comments there, YouTube, uh, this comment section. I commit to emptying the jar. This is our commitment. This is what's going to change the world that we're in. Is when people like you and I say, Jesus, I'm all in. You've done so much for me. I'm all in for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, your loving kindness. Father, I say that so often in my prayers, thanking you for your goodness, your grace, and your loving kindness. And Father, I repent that so often when I say it as just repetitive words, checking a box of prayer, and not fully understanding the depth of those words, that you have been so good. Your grace has been enormous in my life. Your loving kindness has been more than I, could, than I deserve. And so right now, Father, like this woman, I fall at your feet and I pour out it. I just pour it all out. God, it's all yours. It's all yours. I surrender. And Father, for those that are here today that may have never given their life to you, Jesus, they surrender. We surrender. We surrender our lives to you, Jesus. Take every aspect of our lives for those that are watching online, Father, I pray, God, that you will also, your, that your spirit, the presence that we feel in this room right now would be felt in that living room or in that bedroom or in that kitchen, in that dining room, Father, right now, Father. That's our heart, that's our prayers that we surrender. We empty the jar. In Jesus' name.